brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. Almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there Beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested Every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know Unless you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us Just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? Here we go, higher side chatters. I hope your seat backs and tray tables are in the upright lock position and you're properly strapped in because today we're taking one hell of a ride through a legendary mystery and an occulted code that will lead us through a trail of famous documents, landmarks, sacred geometry, and just the sort of legendary characters that one would expect these sorts of codes to come from. And like many threads of this nature, it speaks of advanced knowledge and deeply profound spiritual truths considered heresy to the ironclad control of religious authorities and the old-time gatekeepers of truth. It is a fascinating real-life Da Vinci Code journey, and the cornerstone of this mystery revolves around the works of Shakespeare, whose true identity, of course, is itself a highly debated mystery, which just adds that much more icing to an already overcrowded cake to be cut and served by today's guest, Alan Green. Not only has that sweet synchronicity guided Alan down the path of discovering this intricate mystery, but he's also a classically trained pianist, composer, author, educator, and Shakespeare authorship scholar. He was also the musical director for Davy Jones of the Monkeys for several years and co-authored with Jones two best-selling award-winning books, They Made a Monkey Out of Me and Mutant Monkeys. His first academic book, Decoding Shakespeare, was released in September 2016, and it documents the role of Dr. John Dee, alchemist, astrologer, and the leading cryptographer of the Renaissance in the greatest literary cover-up of all time. Since then, he's been working on many forms of media in which to reveal that which has been concealed from just up the five highway in the City of Angels, the bard code breaker, the Shakespeare mystery shaker, Alan Green. Welcome to the higher side. Thank you, Greg. Pleasure to be here. Yes, man. Thanks for doing this. Uh, you really are ground zero for a very unique and fascinating discovery, and it is a real pleasure to have you here. This is exactly the kind of thing we love, and this interview has kind of been in the works for a long time. It's almost been a full year since we first tried to schedule it. 
but those nasty California wildfires got in the way. Yeah. And, you know, the universe tends to know when the time is right. And in the last year, some new layers have been added, as well as new media projects related to this material. And so here we are. <laughs> here we are. Looking forward to it. Yes. And to kick this off, let me just ask you to grease the wheels a bit by just reminding people why Shakespeare's writing is so unique and legendary and why his identity is such a mystery. You know, I didn't know a thing about Shakespeare when I was introduced to this almost 15 years ago. And I consider that a blessing because it meant I wasn't hobbled by any of the typical academic story that we are fed in school as to the history of Shakespeare, who he was, etc. So I got introduced to it by a friend of mine who just invited me to see a one-man show he was producing in Los Angeles about the Shakespeare mystery, but I knew nothing about it. And in fact, I wasn't the least bit interested. I actually had a uh, an aversion to it my whole life, which is interesting in itself, because as I say, it sort of gave me a clean slate to come on board without any preconceived notions. But my friend introduced me to it. I saw his show and what he essentially brought out at that show floored me. And now they can be it can be summed up in just a few sentences. There is essentially no paper trail for Shakespeare concerning at least poetry and playwriting. There are no manuscripts, there are no plays, no poems, no letters, not a page, not a line written in his own hand. That in itself is extraordinary because there's plenty of information for all the other playwrights and poets of the time. And since he was the star of that, time it's just it just makes you think well, 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 well why would that be greatest writer ever never wrote a letter to anybody mm-hmm. and no one ever uh, delivered one to him uh, one apparently was found that was never opened and that's absolutely it one somebody wrote something to him and it never was opened so this has been a huge manhunt anyway since he is widely considered the the greatest Western writer of all time, whether or not you understand him or even like him is beside the point. I think we all intuitively understand that we should, you know, (laughs) you're invited to a a Shakespeare play. You think, oh, maybe I won't get it. But you end up going and and being surprised like, oh, I I laughed myself silly or I cried or it hit me on so many levels. I didn't understand 90 percent of it. But Hmm. so there's something about the works that is eternal and makes it just as important and and recognizable today uh, as it was 400 years ago. And so anyway, that I just got bitten by the bug of why would there be no paper trail? There are very, very few facts about the man from Stratford, who we are told was Shakespeare, and those facts have nothing whatsoever to do with playwriting or poetry. Mark Twain wrote a book uh, called Is Shakespeare Dead? in which he decided he would basically curate together all the information that we had, provable facts that we had about him, and they amount to about 72 facts. 
um, five pages, maybe double spaced, mm. <laughs> and that's it. And, and it's all they're all about real estate and and the various things that he was known to have been involved in. They couldn't find him for tax evasion. He was convicted of hoarding grain, or rather accused of hoarding grain during a famine and trying to gouge his neighbors for the price of corn. And yet then apparently going back to London and saying the quality of mercy is not strained. Mm -hmm. That's the gentle rain from heaven. A lot of stuff that just doesn't make sense. And many, many, many great minds for the past couple of hundred years have just not been able to make that connection. What well, from Waldo, from Waldo Emerson, uh, Walt Whitman, many, all the biggest names in philosophy and literature at the time have all said, can't be this guy who never traveled anywhere and yet knows Italy like the back of his hand. So that was the background for me was, wow, there's a mystery. I think I'll write about this. And I started writing about it the very next day after I was introduced to it. And my natural bent was to write a musical, because that's what I, I do. But soon after starting the musical and getting into the research, I realized this story went very, very, very deep. And I started to realize the more I looked into it, that it was going to be a long, long project if I was be able to write about it uh, intelligently. So that's how it started. And I'm sure for most people, we don't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that there was no paper trail. And yet, what are all these books about? There are maybe a 100,000 books about Shakespeare, all saying he probably did this and he must have done that. And no doubt he went here and assume, we assume he did this. I mean, it's all conjecture because there is no history. You could just literally state the history academically in five minutes and then get on with the plays. And so people say, well, it doesn't really matter. We have the plays and we have the poems and that's what matters. So it really doesn't matter who wrote it. <laughs> but um, on the other hand, there's a lot of hints in the plays and the poems that say, no, 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 there's something else going on here. And so I got bitten by that bug and I haven't had a day off since. <laughs> that is a great introduction. And you're right. It is very strange that there are no original manuscripts, no handwritten things by Shakespeare, only these typed plays. And we have, I guess, six original signatures, but they're all different and they relate to his will and land purchases, legal documents. And so it is a mystery even that those six signatures are so weird and don't match up at all. And anyone who has tried to digest the material itself, it is legendarily dense and difficult. And like you said, you might not understand all of it, but you still get a sense that there is deep wisdom contained within. And even just the structure of his work is interesting. I mean, I'm not uh, a literary expert, so I don't know the technical terms, but I think it's fascinating that he has this five-syllable pattern for a lot of stuff. But then there's also a separate rhyme scheme of uh, a pattern of four syllables for beings who are magical or are fairies. And then, of course, the fool in his tales usually says the deepest truths or has the most wisdom. So this is all kind of in that soup of what secret societies and sacred knowledge and all that kind of stuff. This is kind of, it, it involves the same wrapping in a sense. Yeah, you've done your homework, right? <laughs> I try, I try. I got one job, right? It's to, it's to do that homework. Those those six signatures are, are, are a key also because they are all spelled differently. 
and really hardly even legible. So that's a, that's a very strange thing for him to have left. Not even handwriting experts can agree they were all written by the same person. And as you said, three are on the will. His last will and testament probably were written by clerks who were, were putting his will together. So we really don't know. It's just, it just doesn't make sense that there would be this enormous vacuum. No one spoke contemporaneously about having seen him down the pub, you know, oh, I met Will last night after we saw King Lear and we were having a beer and he was talking about his next production and there's none of that. We start seeing writings about him uh, afterwards, years and years and years afterwards, um, but actual people who identified that they saw the actual writer there's a couple of references to, oh, well, Shakespeare at the time, but only in reference to the, the, the printing of the name on some of the plays. And that it's quite possible that that was a pen name because it was in some hyphenated and about half of them hyphenated and hyphenations were a common way of suggesting a pen name. But you know, all, altogether, none of, the, none of that is conclusive or provable and so it's very difficult when you get into stating certain ideas about why there's a mystery because the onus is on well the, 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 let's let's split it into certain categories uh, so that people understand the man we're taught about is from Stratford upon Avon and so the people who believe he was Shakespeare are called Stratfordians there are other categories of people who believe, no, it couldn't have been this illiterate. He certainly came from an illiterate family. Derek Jacobi says a wonderful thing about the family. He says, you know, you've got illiterate through the generations. He goes, illiterate, 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 greatest writer ever, <laughs> illiterate, illiterate, illiterate. I mean, his, his daughters <laughs> didn't learn to read and write. I mean, that's a hard thing to wrap your head around. That the guy would come home and say, wow, I had a hard day at the office writing Hamlet today. Uh, listen, dears, you know, read. Oh, I forgot you can't read. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, it just, <laughs> it just doesn't make much sense. And he never traveled anywhere, and he's got this massive knowledge. There's no evidence of an education even, and yet it just he knows seemingly everything about everything that's en en encompassed in the plays from... Uh, mathematics to astronomy to botany to all seafaring and navigation and mathematics and the law. You know, I mean, how does he know all this stuff? He had to have had access to an enormous library. Um, so anyway, it's very hard anyway to state categorically, oh, I, I believe it's not that person, it's this person. No, many people have, as I say, for about 200 years. There were people who believed it was Francis Bacon. There were people who believe it's Christopher Marlowe. There were people who believe it's Queen Elizabeth. There were people who believe it's Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. And all these beliefs are bolstered by their own individual research. And it's wrong to either say, yep, yeah, they're right, or no, this is rubbish, because there isn't enough concrete evidence. So what I went looking for was actual concrete evidence physical evidence and I found that that was present 
in in codes that I had discovered, and many people also had uh, been on the search for codes for many many years as well. But I just happened to stumble upon what I believe was the right way to decode it. And once having done that, uh, was on a, a journey to actually prove that scientifically, which we'll, we'll get into later, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, it is quite amazing. And Wikipedia lists 87 different candidates. And there is just a mountain of work that has been done that leads to many different possibilities. It is like a JFK assassination rabbit hole or something. Yeah. And now let's back up a little bit and talk about your personal story, because the longer I live, the more I find life playing out more like a well-written plot than just a bunch of random occurrences, as they'd have us believe. And several threads in your life are full of the kind of synchronicity that defies logic. Talk to us about your path through, say, the music industry a bit, your realizations about the power of manifestation, and how it kind of ties into this big story. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's go back then right to the to to the beginning. I don't mean to dwell on it overly, but it's it is pertinent and it will come full circle. So I don't like to sound as though I'm reeling off a list of accomplishments because that's not the purpose. In fact, what I'm going to tell you is more or less to point out the the folly of youth and particularly of my youth <laughs> to say how oh, I thought I had it all together I did this I did that I did that so as I say these things don't don't take them in in that vein because you're gonna we're gonna come to a point where I have a come up and a recognition mm. that I'd better sort myself out because all this sort of manifesting it's very interesting um, I, I I as a kid. Um, I just had always had that feeling that I, I could manifest anything. And I think perhaps that's a, um, a fairly common uh, experience for children until we get out into the world and get beaten up a bit by it. You know, I think we all feel pretty invincible, maybe. I, I, I don't know that there's been a, a, <laughs> a true amount of research done on that, but I, uh -huh. I know many people who felt that when they were kids. Like, ah, I can do anything. I certainly felt it. Oh, yeah. Because, I don't know, you're fresh from the astral. You're fresh from the um, wherever we were before and wherever mm. we'll go after. And even if you don't believe that, that's, that's okay too. But nevertheless, there's something about consciousness in us that says, I am special. After all, I'm, I, I am the center of my universe, right? I'm, I'm the only person that I can say, I, I. You need, no one else has that experience apparently and yet oh yeah we all do uh -huh. i remember asking my dad a very very deep question when i was i don't know i seem to remember i was maybe about eight or nine and i asked him this deep zen question i said dad why am i me and not somebody else hmm. and i remember exactly word for word what he said he said don't be silly, Doris. You are somebody else. <laughs> Doris, I don't know where he got that from. He used to call, <laughs> he used to call me all kinds of names. Don't be silly, Doris. You are somebody else. Which, if, if you know, that's a sort of a Zen master answer. You know, like hit you over the head. <laughs> yeah. It was just, you know, uh, you are somebody else. Of course, because to him, I was somebody else. Oh, that's interesting. This sense of I-ness is, uh, 
is universal, and yet we, every single one of us thinks we are the I, and nobody else is. No, it's very bizarre when you try to wrap your head around it. Anyway, yeah. we'll get to that later because that's one of the key things that Shakespeare says. I am that I am. It's the name of God, you know, when in, in the Bible, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And, and wrap your head around that because that's 3.14. That's pi. In chapter 3, verse 14, <laughs> uh, Moses is on Mount Sinai and he asks, God, he says, who shall I say sent me? You know, they're going to think I'm nuts coming down the hill with these Ten Commandments. You know, tell me your name. And God says, Ahir, 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 Hebrew for I am that I am. Tells him the name of God. I am that I am. Well, it turns out that Shakespeare uses that very, very, very phrase in Sonnet 121. I am that I am. Anyway, we'll get to that. So <laughs> I'm a kid. I'm coming home from school in my... Uh, early teens and there's a new tv show on and it's called the monkeys and my dad funnily enough is watching it he kind of likes it i didn't like it because i was into the beatles and i thought this was comparatively i, I just it didn't resonate for me but there was, there was more going on than that because i actually had a visceral reaction to seeing this little bastard davy jones <laughs> from around the corner from where I live. He's from Manchester. And I'm living in Manchester, and I'm thinking, why has he got this job? He's he's the next Beatles, right? I mean, it's the next Beatles. It was intended to be the next Beatles. It was a, it was a you know, they called the Beatles the Fab Four, and they called the Monkeys the Pre-Fab Four. And it was very strange to me that I had this absolute gut reaction. I actually hated him. In my gut, my stomach was churning. Now, where does that come from? I mean, I had no reason, no rational reason. I didn't know him. He'd never done anything to me. But I actually hated him. And I wouldn't watch the show. I didn't like it. And years and years and years and years later, that comes back to be very meaningful <laughs> to me because um, I meet him and end up working with him as his musical director for 12 years. So, anyway... That sort of background, that happened. What was that about? We'll leave that for a moment. I go out into the world as a musician thinking, well, I want to be that successful. I want to be doing stuff like, like he's doing. And all I knew was I, that, that I had read maybe one book and I can't remember what it would have been. Maybe how to win friends and influence people. Dale Carnegie. Mm. I can't remember, but I got this sense from somewhere that to manifest your goals, you must believe they already exist and you must picture them and imagine it, not just thinking, I want this to come into being, but actually believe it already is. And and so I set off to do that. And the first time I actually did it, I, I had done a bit of traveling. I'd gone to Africa with a jazz band. I come back, I think, oh, this is cool. I really like the traveling thing. Maybe I'd like to work on a cruise ship. I don't know where that idea came from. But I bought a picture of a cruise ship, slapped it up on my wall, and sat in front of it every night, imagining that I was there. I could see myself on the cruise ship. I could picture the palm trees and the blue ocean and me singing at the grand piano on a cruise ship and seeing all these wonderful places in the Bahamas that I'd never been to, you know. And I actually just got into Oh, it's real, it's real, it's real, it's real. And thinking that like, I am there. And within about three months, 
I got a call out of the blue from someone, did not know this person. He said, I got your number from so-and-so. I hear you're a pretty good pianist. Uh, would you be interested in uh, joining my band on a cruise ship? And I said, ah, oh, that's how it happens. <laughs> that's how it works. Mm -hmm. So I go on a cruise ship. And gradually I just did more and more of this. I thought, oh, that's interesting. I want a record deal. And I would sit at home after I did my cruise ship stint. I'm picturing myself signing a record deal in London. And it's going to happen. I can feel it. Not going to happen. It's happened. And, and lo and behold, through contacts, I mean, of course, I had to do the pushing and shoving and writing songs, etc. But nevertheless, that's what I wanted. And that's what was manifesting. I got a record deal. But it was a very small label. And it wasn't the sort of uh, thing that I envisioned. I thought, oh, I want to be, I want to be signed by, ooh, by Davis, Arista. Ah. <laughs> and my first record deal fell apart for various reasons. I then... I went, oh, okay, let's do that. And I pictured where Clive Davis's office was in New York. And I'm sitting in my apartment now in London and I'm facing New York. I'm thinking, yeah, it's over there. I can, I can picture his office. And I just pictured myself signing a record deal with Clive Davis. And, and honestly, within a few months, the person who was taking care of my uh, business then, my manager, uh, makes the acquaintance of Clive Davis, invites him to come and see my show. Clive Davis comes to see my show in London, signs me on the spot. So I, I'm thinking, wow, this is this is amazing. This is how you do it, you know. If you can believe, it is. So that was what started. And so to get me through to the connection to Davy, I'm just going to rush through a bunch of things. That deal fell through because I was a pain in the ass to work with. Hmm. And I literally wouldn't let anybody do that job. And Clive Davis said to me, he says, I've signed you, but, uh, but you haven't written any hits yet. Um, because, and I, and I got sort of, you know, upset over that. Well, what do you mean I haven't written any hits? I mean, you haven't put anything out. Obviously, it's not a hit yet. Hmm. <laughs> I don't have a hit. But he's saying he's doing his deal. He's doing his Clive Davis thing. You know, I know a hit when I hear it and I've heard your demos and you don't have any. I went home, wrote three songs in a huff, you know. I'll show you about a hit. And I wrote three songs, and one of them was a joke, an absolute joke song, and it was called Fifteen. And it was intended for a teeny bop band. And it was a it was it was a very catchy and it was obviously a hit. I mean to me it was a hit. And it went baby, you'll soon be fifteen. And you know what I mean when I say I love you. All right, that sounds like a hit. And I play it for Clive, and Clive says, yep, that's a hit. You're going to record it. And I said, no, 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 I can't record it. I'm 25 years old. Mm -hmm. Don't you get it? It's a joke. 15 is not legal. <laughs> <laughs> I can't be singing to two members. And he absolutely insisted. He said, no, you've got to record it. I said, oh, come on. I give it to the Bay City Rollers or, or some, you know, I mean, I just did that to prove to you I can write a hit. No, you're going to record it. I recorded under duress, really, really upset over the fact that I'm thinking, well, I'm going to record a ton of other stuff. And he's going to hear the other stuff and he'll release that. He won't ever release this one. This is just a joke. No, at the end of it, he said, yeah, that's fabulous. You're going to record it. You're going to release it. It's going to be your hit record. And I thought, well, if I do that, I'm going to end up being a, a, a teeny bop singer for the rest of my life. And it actually is very uncomfortable. 
Because as I say, I was already 25. I wasn't a teen. So it just didn't work. And I said, no, I'm not going to. And I said, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> Goodbye. So I got dropped from that label. So I've now been on two labels. But I don't care because I know I can manifest a label, right? Mm. <laughs> I can just manifest the next one. And I come to America and I, I start trying to manifest. And it's not working. And I, I by this point, I've done... I've been to see about 20 labels in L.A. and they're all very excited. I've given them my Arista album that was never released saying, here, here, look, listen to these tapes, aren't they great? Oh, yeah, we love them. But then nobody followed through. So I got very, very, very desperate at this time because it, it suddenly seemed to be not working. The point I'm getting to is, and I want to, I want to just stress this because for, for, for listeners, I just want you to understand where I'm coming from on this. The idea of manifesting is certainly, it's got to be real. I had proven it to myself that by focusing one's belief, one can apparently affect what is coming towards you. And I could feel it very viscerally. At the same time, though, I was not in a good space as far as being a, being somebody that was uh, cognizant of other people's feelings. I, I'm not proud of the way I was behaving at the time. And I could see that that was... Uh, not working well because I got dropped by two labels. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, now I've got I'm I'm desperate because I'm really at my wit's end. I borrowed a lot of money to come to America, and I it's, it's seemingly not working anymore. And I'm in the middle of driving back towards LA after taking a brief hiatus uh, and saying, "Oh God, what am I going to do? I I I'm in desperate desperate trouble here." And to cut a long story short, I'm not going to go deeply into the, the, the details, but honestly, I had what I know was a spiritual experience of talking with the whatever you want to call and whatever one is comfortable with, God, the divine energy, whatever. But I could feel it, and it was a life-changing experience. It wasn't imagination. It was absolutely the most real thing I had ever felt or experienced in my life and it went roughly like this i'm when i say i hear a voice it's not that you hear a voice it's just an intuitive inside i i have this sense of yes i am being communicated with and the and the voice for want of a better term was saying alan when you're in a room playing your new songs for a group of people and there's even one person not paying attention you get really upset, don't you? Well, I, that nailed, that was me, yeah? That nailed me. I wanted everybody to be paying attention to me. Mm. <laughs> wow. If nine people out of ten were wrapped attention saying, oh, this is fabulous, Alan, and one person is, is not paying attention, I'm, I'm focusing on that one person. And this, I'm getting this realization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in an instant, this... To me, I just say divine, said, well, I'm doing all this constantly. And it was as though a hand was swept across the entire horizon as I'm driving. And I saw and felt bliss in everything, everything. And I had that experience that people talk about, about being one with everything. I'm doing this. I'm seeing stars in, in, in daylight, you know, and I'm seeing the sap in the trees and I'm seeing, I, I don't know, it's, hard, it's impossible to describe, but an, a supernatural experience of energy everywhere, 
flowing, beautiful, deep, and I was in bliss. I was in a, a kind of peace I had never, ever, ever known. Suddenly, bang, I'm doing this all the time, and hardly anybody's paying attention. <laughs> but I don't get upset. Wow. <laughs> I don't get upset because I have infinite patience. I was really hit between the eyes with, you know, hey. And essentially, it was a conversation that went on for a little while of, you know, you're giving no attention to where this comes from. You think, I manifest this. You, you're doing it. You know, you made the cruise ship. You made Clive Davis sign it. No, maybe, but maybe it's a group effort. Maybe there's a team effort. Maybe I've got something to do with it. The divine is saying, <laughs> maybe, maybe you should credit me. Mm. I'd like some credit. It, it wasn't being said that way, but that was, it was re referencing it back to my own need for personal attention. You know, you need attention, right? What about me? I'm doing all this. I'm doing a freaking universe, man. I'm not just a song. Wow. And because I had hit rock bottom and I had no more avenues to go to, I was ripe, you know, and it was just, yeah, I can't manifest anymore. And all these labels that I thought I could just turn on, nobody's interested, nobody's saying a word. So at that in that moment, because I'm full of utter, something I had never experienced, uh, it's not just happiness and it's not just even joy, it's bliss. It's a word, there's, a, there's a word for it and it's just the most astounding feeling that I had ever had at that time. Uh, a sureness that I am loved completely and I am a part of it all. In fact, really, saying it without that connotation of ego, I am it all, you know, the I am. Mm -hmm. Wow. So at that moment, I accepted that that was the reality. And I knew very well in that, in that moment, I was being told, now, what do you, what do you want? What do you need? And I'm saying, I'm saying to whatever this is, you know what I want. I need a record deal. I'm, I'm massively in debt. Mm. <laughs> I, I owe my friends money. I'm, 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 I've maxed out my American Express credit card. I have no cash in my pocket. I'm going home in a, in a rental car, but it's going to be taken off me. I think I'm going to debtor's prison. I don't know. I mean, don't have debtor's prison in America, but I thought <laughs> for my English upbringing, that's where I was going. <laughs> I, need a, I need a deal. I need a record deal. Of course you do. Are you telling me that the creator of all this, and I'm feeling it and I'm seeing it, you know, the creator of all this can't get you a record deal? Ask me. Ask me. Don't just say, you can do it. Wow. And at that moment, I knew internally that I could actually ask, and it was a truth uh, it's in the Bible. It's in all. It's in all great scriptures about if you can believe, you know, and it's possible. But you must, believe, but believe, believe, total belief, without any doubt, without any flaws. And I, in my experience of manifesting, it had always been: I have to churn the ether with my thoughts, my positive thoughts, to say, "I am being signed by Clive Davis. I am. I am. I am. I get it. I get it. I feel it." And then when you come out of that meditation, there's always the little voices in your head saying. Yeah, but maybe not. You know, who do you think you are, right? We all have negative voices, and we have this idea that we're going to power through with positive voices. And it's obvious, it was obvious to me, that one had one had to outweigh the other. You had to be really manifesting up in the idea of, I'm 90% positive, and only, I'm only 10% negative. 
throughout the rest of the day and I can squash those thoughts as well with more definite positive thoughts. You've got to do that. Be positive all the time to attract what you want that is positive. And that's what I had been doing, but I found it easy to do that. Well, now I didn't have, I couldn't even find a negative thought. It was a ludicrous thought to me to even think, what if this doesn't happen? Because this divine being was saying, you have a record deal now, if you can believe it, right? I mean, why can't now? Of course, of course. How can it be possible that the creator of these galaxies that I'm seeing in my head are not, cannot get me a record deal? So I just said, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. wow, wow. And I knew at that moment I had a record deal, at that moment, and I knew that I could also ask for whatever I wanted. But the definite thought came, well, gee, I could ask for a million dollars. It's only a number, it's only zeros, but do I need a million dollars? And actually, I understood that I didn't need a million dollars. What I needed was $60,000 because I was about $25,000 in debt. This is 40 years ago we're talking about, so there's a lot more money than it sounds right now. $60,000 would take care of me. That's what I needed. That's what I asked for. I said, well, I need a record deal. Yeah, done, check. How much do you need? Uh, $60,000 to pay off my debt and uh, give me enough money to write about this experience. Right, okay, done, next. And I'm driving back and this, this blissful state did not leave and I got back to Los Angeles to the couch of a friend that I was sleeping <laughs> in his apartment on, you know, and the next day phone rings and it's Richard Perry from Planet Records who produced Harry Nielsen and, oh God, Streisand and Pointer Sisters, and you know, many, 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 many big names. He says, you gave me a tape a couple of months ago that I never listened to. He says, but just yesterday I listened to it and it's the best thing I've ever heard in a long, long time. Come to my home. Uh, I want to give you a record deal. Well, it didn't work out that it ended up being Richard Perry, but, but, but he, I got turned on to another label and blah, blah, blah. But the point is I signed a record deal and I had a record deal. And it was, it was at that moment that that experience was happening that he listened to that tape. And of course, I, then I ended up signing a, a record deal with ABC and they gave me a, a, an advance. Can you guess how much that advance was? It can only be 60K. It's exactly what it was. And so and at that moment, I, and I was, I, I honestly was in a state, a heightened state. So uh, that bliss lasted for about three months. I could not uh, get, I couldn't get rid of it. I wouldn't want to get rid of it. But I mean, I, it just wouldn't, it was there all the time. Utter, utter bliss. And then it faded. And after three months, it started to fade away. And I knew that, oh, okay, that's real. I can experience that. But now I probably didn't deserve that. That was grace. I've got to go find it myself. I, I just knew all that intuitively. And I went looking for my own spiritual path. And I, I found it. And I'm not, I'm not going to name it because I would, you know, I'm not uh, going to be at all saying, oh, one should do this. I mean, I, I, I just say, you know what, go looking. If you're looking for something for yourself, go looking for what resonates. It will, it will speak to you. And I found what it was. And I found a certain meditation technique. And... Through that technique, I was able to then regain that blissful experience that I thought had gone. And from that, I got actually a, a sequence of other. <laughs> One record deal led to another, led to another. Finally, my fifth record deal, I get the hit record that I wanted, I Surrender. It's called I Surrender, and it was about that experience, I Surrender. So now we get to, <laughs> uh, basically, I would say, oh, God gave me the, the, the record deal I wanted. 
I knew that. I mean, that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted when I was a kid. I want, I want a hit record like that bloody bastard Davy Jones, who I don't like. <laughs> and so I finally had my hit, and it was a small hit. It was number one in a couple of areas up in Seattle and Atlanta, but overall in the states, it was uh, number twenty-seven. And 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 I'd had it. That was it. It was a small, tiny little hit. Got a little bit of satisfaction, and then bam. It was taken from me. The record deal ended and I was thrown out. And I know it was for a purpose because I would have, I, I would probably not be alive today if I'd have had fame and fortune. I, I'd have, you know, it wouldn't have been good for me. But I did get the little bit I wanted. And then, bam, I get a call out of the blue. I'm not manifesting anything anymore, by the way. You know, I'm not saying I want this, I want this. I was just content. I know I can get what I need when it when I need it. I don't need to do this massive manifesting spree. It's going to come because I'm looked after, I'm cared for, I am loved by something. I believe it's the divine, but you know, whatever. It's it's for all those listening. There's a love. There's something. There is consciousness that tells you you are important. You are so important. You are the I. This I am that knows itself. And so that's the state I was in. And so I didn't need to be manifesting. And yet things started manifesting and on their own or through divine intervention. I get a phone call. Got a gig for you. Can't tell you what it is. It's kind of hush hush. Got to go to this uh, theater and rehearse a band. They can't read their charts. They're not very good at reading music. They need to be whipped into shape. And uh, it's just a one day thing. Just teach them the charts and, and we'll pay you blah, blah, blah. Okay. And I show up and I'm there and I'm running the band through their charts. And one number, two number, three number, the fourth number is a monkey's tune. And then five and six, seven aren't. And then the eighth number is a monkey's tune. And I'm going, what is this? Nobody will tell me. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting them. To, and they can play well. They just can't read the charts. So I'm sort of taking them through it. And then out, you know, I'm on the proscenium arch of the stage with the band and down, I don't know, 200 yards away, a door opens at the back behind all these red plush velvet seats and in walks who? Gotta be Davy Jones. David Jones and my stomach immediately churned. <sighs> this is that bastard I don't like. Hmm. Now, where's that come from? Never met him. I didn't know. All of a sudden, this is 20 years after... About 20 after, after the time of, uh, no, it's not quite 20, 15 years later, uh, after the time that I had hated him as a school kid for no reason, you know, irrational hatred, stomach churning. And he walks in and, and I went, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, no, this guy. And he walks up to me and he goes, hello, cowboy. I hear you're from Manchester. Oh, great. We're going to have a fabulous time. Do you know that pub down road on uh, Wicker Street? And do you remember the Ina Sharple story? And, and he starts in with the Manchester humour. And all my resistance went because he's funny and he's really engaging. <laughs> and he's just saying, uh, are you, oh, man. And we, we start in with the Manchester humour. Now, the, the band are all American and they're standing on stage thinking, what's going on here? We don't understand what they're talking about because it's very local humor and we're just killing each other. And I'm making him laugh and he's making me laugh. And within 10 minutes, I realize I don't hate this guy. I love him. We were, it was instant. Oh man, I love this guy. 
where, where did that all come from? Well, to me now, I know it's it's, it's all karma. It, it, it was a it was something in the past between us uh, lifetimes ago. Who knows? But it was definitely there that was just. I don't want to see this guy again. And there he was. He was the funniest person I have ever known. He could make you hurt from laughing. He could make you roll on the ground saying, please, stop, 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 clutching my stomach, going, oh, no, no. He could play laughter like Coltrane played sax huh. or Oscar Peterson played the piano or Duke Ellington played the orchestra. He was a master at making you laugh. And he, he would, once he got you laughing, he would prod and prod and prod and never stop until you were begging, begging for mercy stop because this is hurting too much. Stop it, stop it, stop it. And I'm rolling on the floor laughing, but I could make him laugh too. And he liked that. And we're, we're just knocking each other out within 10 minutes. And he says, so you're coming on the road with us, aren't you? It'd be great. I says, I can't stand these yanks. I don't understand them. You and me together on the road with Manchester boys. It'd be fabulous. Come on. And I just found myself saying, yeah, okay. And two days later, I'm on the road with him as his musical director. And I was with him for 12 years. Mm. How about that? Yes, it's quite <laughs> funny how it all comes around. The karma, you know. We had to work out some stuff from the past. Now, I won't go into the stuff because... Some of that's pretty ugly, <laughs> and we weren't always the best of friends. <laughs> but at the same time, I love him dearly and still do. And uh, you know, he's he's passed now, and he's he's in a fine place. I know he is, and so it's all good. Hmm. It's all good. We just had some stuff to work out. So there we are. That takes us through all that, and now we can get onto Shakespeare. <laughs> yes. So. Life is definitely weird sometimes, and that is uh, quite a full circle loop. But yes, to bring it back to the full story here, you learn about this Shakespeare authorship rabbit hole, you go down it a little bit, and then how do we connect these two parts, working with Davy Jones of the Monkeys and being fascinated by this Shakespeare authorship mystery? Well, one of the connections is that what I had to learn was um, to get rid of my horrible attitude about working with people and, and my own need for attention, whereas I got to experience I got to experience the kind of fame and fortune that I thought I always wanted through David vicariously. And I got to see how awful it was up up close. I mean living with him for 12 years and knowing that he knew he didn't know he could trust anybody as his real friend. He liked me because I was always truthful with him. He would say, uh, you, you, you liked us, right? You, you liked the monkeys when you were a kid. I mean, you saw me, right? You know how brilliant I was, right? And I, I would say, um, yeah, oh, oh. I liked Mickey occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> No, you don't mean that. Uh, yeah. Oh, wasn't the music great? Well, I don't know. It wasn't the Beatles, was it? I mean, I would just wind them up, you know. And, and I did grow to like their music. And uh, later, I was blocked from liking it because I you know, didn't like him <laughs> for, for unknown reasons. But in other words, it wouldn't have been good for me to have that fame. Uh, he had it in spades, obviously. He was the, he was the 
pop superstar of the era in 66. The, the Monkees sold more records than the Beatles and Elvis combined. And so we, we go on this wild ride and I'm, I'm playing with him all over the world and seeing how it is, how this fame is, is just, it's just stuck to you like glue. You can't go anywhere without being, uh, you know, the, the center of attention. And, and in some way, in some respects, that's great. In other words, in others, it's not so great and it's hard. And I got to experience it vicariously and realized, well, I don't, yeah, I wouldn't like that. So I got to experience it through that without having to go through it myself and have the discomfort of having no privacy ever and so one of the things now in in what i'm doing now in promoting the wonderful person who, who is shakespeare whether it's the man from stratford or somebody else whatever i i am i have discovered things about shakespeare that i want to tell the world about and i'm promoting i'm promoting that person not me I'm not promoting myself anymore. And that, that was what was always uncomfortable for me, the idea of push, 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 self-promote, self-promote. That was always got me into trouble. It made me not a nice person. And then once I'd got through that and found that I could have this bliss, I could have this peace, I could have this love, whenever I wanted it, if I felt unloved, I could just go and meditate and do this technique that I know and, and, and find it again. And so you don't need to be constantly self-promoting. And so this this thing came into my lap where, wow, it seems to be your job to uh, to promote Shakespeare, who who this person really is and how fascinating this person is, because he's way, way, way more fascinating than we think he is. And so uh, promoting that is easy for me because I'm saying I'm not saying look at me. I'm saying, look at this, look at this. And I'm a good promoter. You know, I know I've learned how to manifest and promote, 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 but it's much more comfortable to me now to be promoting someone else, not my own stuff, you know? So that's one benefit that comes from, uh, from those two worlds connecting. But you just told me about before we started about some connection that I didn't know about, about <laughs> somebody quoting Shakespeare on the first monkey show. Yep. What was that? Uh, you know, it is a weird tangent, but we follow the work of a guy named Chris Knowles pretty closely, and he follows a series of synchronicities that revolve around the singer Elizabeth Frazier from the Cocktoo Twins. And this song that was originally sang by Tim Buckley called Song of the Siren, this song was first performed by Tim Buckley on the very first episode of the Monkees TV show, but also... Liz Frazier got her start in a group called This Mortal Coil, which is, strangely enough, taken from Shakespeare's Hamlet. And you just happen to be at the center of this. I mean, you worked with Davy Jones of the Monkees, and you're very much involved in this big Shakespeare mystery. And I just think that is a crazy wow. loop of coincidences that I know this audience would enjoy and probably likes hearing about. And it's just a wild ride, man. I mean, that's how life unfolds sometimes. But I didn't know that, Greg, and I thank you for telling me about it. And I will look into Liz Frazier. I don't know. I just, I, I never, I had to, it somehow escaped me, and it's another new little synchronicity. You go, ah, another one. Great, cool, indeed. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, having Davy Jones in your back pocket, or having this resource in your back pocket. That is just, I think, really fascinating because when you came to a roadblock, which we should get up to, it actually came in quite handy. The roadblock of, of, of which one are you referring to now? I've got so many roadblocks. Well, 
I'm referring to the church. I'm referring to getting in good with the people of the church, but we haven't even gotten there yet. So to take it back to the Shakespeare mystery and to bring it up to this roadblock at the church that I'm referring to, talk to us about this breadcrumb trail of codes you found within things that are related to Shakespeare. All right. Most of this work is is very easy to understand when you see it visually because it 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 is a very visual thing to look at texts codes and and see how they interrelate. So it's a little hard to describe. I can do it for you, but I just would urge people if they want to know further to go to a YouTube channel and, and see a couple of videos. I've got a bunch of videos up on a YouTube channel and we'll perhaps plug that precisely later on. But in other words, you can see, you can see it uh, in graphic representation, which is always easier to comprehend than just hearing a description. But in a nutshell, I began to find in my research that there was something curious about the gravestone of Shakespeare, the monument of Shakespeare, in what's known as Shakespeare's Church in Stratford-upon-Avon, where the man from Stratford is buried. And the first thing that's curious is that the gravestone that is purported to be his gravestone doesn't have his name on it. And it has a very curious well, it's in what you described earlier uh, as four. It, it, it's four. It's not. It's called iambic tetrameter, and the one that everybody knows is iambic pentameter, the five. But the gravestone is written in tetrameter four, and it, it says, "Good friend, for Jesus' sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here, lest be the man that spares these stones." And cursed be he that moves my bones. It's a pretty bad poem. And it certainly doesn't have Shakespeare's name on it. But, hmm. you know, they come into the church and they get pointed to there and you pay two pounds to come into the chancel and see the grave of Shakespeare. There are some anomalies to that that didn't quite make sense to me. I had been, dis- I had been researching how codes were made during the Renaissance, and they were very, very, very popular because it was a very repressive regime at the time, the Elizabethan and the Jacobean regimes, and uh, even prior to that, it was all, you know, very, very uh, repressive. And so people did communicate through codes, and anagrams were all very, very, very popular pastime as a way of uh, getting certain truths that were perhaps considered heretical by the church at the time. So his monument as well, above that gravestone, also reads similarly very strange, absolutely just weird syntax. And then there's something in the sonnets, dedication, that has been thought to be code for a couple of hundred years. People have written loads and loads of books about it. And it too doesn't seem to make sense. And it has dots between every word in the sonnet's dedication. So all of these things I started to twig were perhaps part of a code. Now, to just speed it along and get past the difficulty of it being easier to see, I will just say 
that the one person in that time period who would be capable of creating a really extensive, deep and beautiful, elegant code, if if such were the case, you know, that springing from my suspicion of why is there no paper trail? Why is there absolutely no evidence? Why has everything disappeared if not to hide some story? And if you're hiding a story, but you want that story to come out, there are probably codes. There are pro- there's probably something telling you what really happened, but you have to figure it out because it's a puzzle. The one person capable of doing that at the time would be John Dee. He was the Queen's personal astrologer. He was the most accomplished mathematician, and he was the most accomplished cryptographer. And he was also her spy in Europe. And he looked like Dumbledore or Merlin. He was known as a magician. He's he's a fabulous, wonderful character, Dr. John D. And his code number is 007. Right, right. (laughs) And essentially, that's where the whole uh, James Bond story came from. And Oh, so yeah, he is the queen. He is on the, on Her Majesty's secret service. He is a spy. His code number is 007. It, it, he's he's in Europe working for her, but he's 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 the guy. If if there's anybody that could have done this, it would be him. Possibly Francis Bacon as well, because Francis Bacon was uh, very clever at coding. But as most people know, there's a, a suspicion that Francis Bacon might be. Shakespeare, but the writings of Shakespeare and the writings of Bacon are so dissimilar that that never quite made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Though I don't discount it entirely that he's part of it. I've discovered he certainly is a major part of it, but I think he's a major part of the encryption, not of the writing. But John Dee was, was absolutely head and shoulders the guy to do encryption. So I, I had researched him and found out that what he does is he uses dots as his way of shuffling letters around in a text so that the letters can be moved to a place where they are correct in their position so that, say, for instance, you take that gravestone in, in, inscription and instead of reading it horizontally, you put it into what's called a grid, so 17 letters, and then you wrap it around and you put another line under itself and another line under itself and another line under itself. You just wrap the text around. and Lo and behold, a vertical message will show up. And this is called a Cardano grill, and it was a very common way of doing encodings in those days. And so I had started to look at this, and I thought, oh, I found a Cardano grill here. Yeah. I was also basing my work on two other people who did massive work in this area, uh, one named John Rollett and one named Art Neuendorfer. So again, I wasn't totally in the dark, uh, just trying this out myself. I had, I had seen some other work that seemed to be promising by these two people, and then I continued it on and took it way, way, way further. As we all do, we build on the shoulders of others. And I literally started looking for these Cardano grills in, oh, in the monument. Let's find one in the monument. So if you find the right grid length, the right number of letters to sort of wrap around and around and around, then you start seeing the vertical message showing up. So I found it in the monument and I found it in the sonnet's dedication and I found it in the gravestone. 
And so when you find it in three places, you think, well, that's pretty, yeah, I'm onto something here. This is real. This is not imagination because the same messages are showing up in all three. The stunning thing was that adding together all the text of the gravestone and the monument and the science dedication, including all those dots between the words that I mentioned and all the punctuation, it added up to 624 characters. And there was a special document that John Dee was renowned for having received. Now, here we get into, again, the spiritual aspect of it. Received. Received from who? From angels. <laughs> if you look into John Dee, John Dee is channeling angels for eight years in Europe. Mm -hmm keeping it secret, writing it in his diaries, because you could be burned at the stake for such a thing, right? And in fact, he tried to keep it hidden, but once he had died, and 60 years later or so, we find his writings, and we realize, wow, this is what he was doing. And he's actually got a bum rap, because people then, even finding it later, tried to completely do a character assassination on him uh, by writing... Wow, what a crazy nutcase he was. He was talking to angels, and there's a lot of there's a lot of work that you can find on John Dee that doesn't paint a very flattering picture because it's written by people who wanted to who wanted to uh, discredit him. But anyway, the point is, these angels, if indeed that's who he was talking with in seances, these angels channeled to him something called the Enochian table. And it was channeled to him on 624 in 1584, June 24th. It actually went from June 24th through the 5th to the 26th. It was a very, very long session where the angels are telling him how to construct a grid of a certain length and a certain size, of a certain shape. And his seance uh, psychic we would call today, but then they were called a scryer. He had somebody that was receiving the messages because he was clear, clairvoyant from the angels. They're, they're delivering these messages to him, letters one by one in the Enochian language. It's a massive, massive story. I mean, you have to really get into it to uh, in depth. But bottom line is they deliver to him a grid called the Enochian tables, and it's 624 characters. And it's delivered on June 24, 624. And now I've found that in the gravestone and the monument and the dedication to the sonnet, 624 characters. Oh, well, maybe <laughs> this is just pure, regular cryptography. And also just a side note, but June 24th was the summer solstice then, which is this other weird detail that seems to tie into maybe the connection between... Us in the spirit world, maybe that's why messages can come through clear at that time. I don't know. But the summer solstice and these certain points in the calendar, they come up a lot in these types of stories. You got it. Absolutely. No, it's, it's not. It is absolutely the whole crux of the thing is in those days, it was celebrated on 624. Today, uh, the solstice is celebrated as June 21 or 22. But remember, the calendar was all out of whack during that time. It was between the Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar. And at that, that time, it was celebrated on June 24th and still is today in certain Scandinavian countries. So there was a significance to this. Not only that, it goes deeper because June 24th is the feast day of John the Baptist, who is the patron saint of 
Who? I don't know. Freemasons. Oh, there we go. I was going to say the Knights Templar, but it's all wrapped up in it's the same kind of stuff. It's the Egyptian mystery schools, then through the Knights Templar, then through the Rosicrucians, which was the secret society at the time of Shakespeare and John Dee. John Dee was, in fact, most notably, uh, there's no proof because it's a secret society, but men, men, lots and lots and lots of evidence points to the fact that he was the head of the Rosicrucians along with Francis Bacon. And then the Rosicrucians morph into the Freemasons. And so uh, a particular branch of Freemasons, Royal Arch Freemasonry, which <laughs> has as its symbol the Royal Arch. The Royal Arch is about what? It's about the sun's movement through the equinox and that point at the at which the sun is at its highest point, which is what? What you just said, summer solstice. So the entire thing is based around the 624. And then when you realize that, oh, but the man that we're told is Shakespeare, who spelled his name various ways, but was always with a hard A sound, Shakespeare. So it's Shakespeare or Shagsper or it's spelled various ways in, in these only remaining six signatures. But nevertheless, it's never Shake, it's always Shack. Shakespeare was baptized on uh, 426, April 26. Now, in my first book on all of this, which took six years to produce, uh, I, I actually prove that uh, that's part of the codes. And I don't use the word proof lightly. It's, it's slam dunk. You can see it. It's very, very, very clear that the actual uh, baptism uh, registry in Stratford is not the original. The original has disappeared. And the one that is there that states 426 for Shakespeare's baptism uh, there are 50 years of records all written in the same hand, going back way before Shakespeare to way past Shakespeare. In other words, this was uh, <laughs> very conveniently written to implant that 426 date as the date for which we would associate with Shakespeare, ultimately. Hmm. Another breadcrumb. That's another breadcrumb. But 426 is 624 reversed. And all of the codes. All of the codes that Shakespeare is leaving for us have to work both ways. And so what I found was, in, in, in forwards and backwards, there are all kinds of clues like this. In the first folio, the big, big book that has all 36 of Shakespeare's plays in it, most expensive book on the planet, most expensive printed book in the world. Uh, the last one that went on auction was bought by the man who died yesterday, Paul Allen of Microsoft. Paul Allen uh, bought... Uh, bid for it at Sotheby's in 2006. He paid six and a half million dollars for one book, first folio. Wow. And, uh, and when you have a, a copy, a facsimile of it, you see it's full of wrong page numbers. And all the wrong page numbers are part of a code. But for instance, the very, very last page in the book should be 399, but it's 993. It's backwards. And, and so you end up with this this, this interesting, fascinating thing of, wow, they're all about mirror imagery. 624 and 426, 399 and 993. It's all part of the encoding, and it's what makes it very, very elegant and beautiful. Anyway, this 
encoding in the Enochian tables, there were 624 characters. Basically, I, I figured out, oh, so the grave and the monument and the sonnet's dedication are 624. They must be what's called ciphertext. Ciphertext points across to another thing, and that's the Enochian tables, which is called plaintext. And if you know the key in the ciphertext, which I knew from having done now 14 years research on it, but at the time I got this six years into it, you know the key, uh, he tells you the key very, very clearly in the plays and in, in the sonnets and won't go into that, you can see it online. But when you know the key, oh, the key is certain letters that point across. So there's letters pointing across from ciphertext to plain text, and it tells you a message. But it's not the complete message. It's just part of it where you then have to turn it around and, and make it work in the opposite direction because if everything is mirror imagery. Bottom line on all this is you do that and it gives you a message that tells you to look inside the altar of Holy Trinity Church, Stratford, where Shakespeare has left something for us physically. Hmm. Wow. He's left something, a physical evidence. Now, Shakespeare's left nothing. The entire uh, academic story, the official orthodox story is Shakespeare left nothing. Nothing. There's no paper trail. And yet here he is saying, I've left something for you. And it's in a certain place. And you can go and look. You can get it. It's right there. I'm telling you where it is. It's in the altar stone, which is about 12 feet from from Shakespeare's grave. Wow. Right. And for people who haven't seen the photo of what the altar area looks like in this church, it's very strange because Shakespeare's tomb is almost up on the stage with the altar. It's like right next to the altar. It's a very weird place. It's not like it's out in a cemetery outside the church. It's like right up in there. And there's that off to the left. And then you have, of course, the altar. And as I've heard you say, altar stones contain a pocket that's maybe the size of a deck of cards or something. And there's supposed to be some kind of relics that relate to the saint that the altar is consecrated to. But in this case, as you are going to tell us in the story of the Stratford heist, this is quite different. Yeah, yeah. So what Greg is saying there is that there's something called a saint's cavity that has to be in a consecrated Catholic altar stone. Now, this consecrated Catholic altar stone was first uh, put into the church and first consecrated in 1208. So 810 years ago. So it's been there a long time. And what happens when they consecrate an altar stone? And it has to be the high, the Holy of Holies. It's called the Holy of Holies altar stone. The high altar where mass is celebrated, the mystery of mass. And what they do is they cut a hole in the bottom of that stone. And that stone is about three tons of solid marble. It's nine foot long, three foot wide and a couple of feet deep. Right, So it's a big, big, big block of stone. And what they do is they cut out a little portion of it underneath, originally, back in 1208. And the Catholic Church says that this has to be the holding place for what's called a reliquary. They put in a little gold or silver or lead box, very interestingly. Gold and silver and lead boxes. <laughs> strike a chord for you that yes <laughs> thing to do with alchemy and which play that i don't know okay well it's um 
something to do with Merchant of Venice. He's, there's a choice of you must choose the gold or the silver or the lead box in, in Merchant of Venice in the hand of the fair lady. Anyhow, <laughs> so the thing is, it's got a little bo- a little gold or silver or lead box inside called a reliquary that is placed inside this hole that they cut in the altar called a sepulchrum. And inside that box, Rome sends over relics of a saint. Relics would be a few slices of bone or some of the saint's writings or a piece of cloth of the saint's clothing, something. But it's all small. It's about the size of a small, bigger than a pack of playing cards, but about maybe the size of a small child's shoebox. And it's placed inside. And then the, the block of stone is cut a little bit and placed back in and cemented back in underneath. You can't see any of this. This is underneath the altar stone. You see the visible top, but the underneath part is surrounded by the altar itself. And that is then, it's considered holy because it's got what the Catholic Church says is parts of the body of a saint. And then they incise five crosses on the surface of that stone, which represent the five stigmata wounds of Christ. The two nails in the hands, the two nails in the feet, and the spear in the side. And then, when all of that is done, then that stone is considered consecrated and a fit vehicle for the mystery of Mass. So then you can pray and have Mass. And, of course, what happens in Mass? They give you the, the Eucharist, which represents the body of Christ, and the wine, which represents the blood of Christ. And this is the communion, Holy Communion where the recipient is supposed to feel that connection with uh, their particular Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's Mass. And that altar stone is called the Holy of Holies, and it has a name. It derives from the original name of the original Holy of Holies altar stone in Solomon's Temple. Very important to the Freemasons, right, and to the Rosicrucians and to the Egyptians. Well, not to the Egyptians, but to the the whole uh, the, the Knights Templar. It's all part of the Egyptian mystery school mythology that comes down to us about what is sacred. And that altar stone is called in in Solomon's temple. It would be held inside the the place that's called. Well, it has a it has a Hebrew name that I will get to. Does anybody know? You remember what is supposed to be inside that, inside that area? It's the Ark of the Covenant. Mm-hmm. That Ark of the Covenant holds the broken pieces of the Ten Commandments. Okay, well, now we're back to that story of God saying, here's the Ten Commandments. I am that I am. Well, all of that is in Solomon's Temple. It's the most holy worshipped place uh, in the whole mythology of all of this, and it's right, it's now where the Temple Mount is in Jerusalem and the source of the whole Middle East uh, unrest, because uh, that's where the original first Solomon's Temple was and then was destroyed. The interesting thing is the name of that place, that Holy of Holies, where the Ten Commandments are held, where is called in Hebrew. The Devere, the Devere, and, and one of the candidates for being Shakespeare is Edward 
De Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. And so the people that believe De Vere is Shakespeare had a big surprise when I first revealed this because I revealed it at a Shakespearean conference. And I said, do you know what the, you know what the Holy of Holies is actually called? It's called the De Vere. And it comes from the root word is, it's wonderful, really. The root word in Hebrew is Deverim, which means word. Hmm. It comes from word, and, it, and therefore being the, play, the Holy of Holies, it's the sacred word, which if you go back to the very, very beginnings, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Mm -hmm. It's the ohm vibration in, in Eastern religions. It's, it's, it's the sound. It's the word. It's the vibrate, vibratory force. Word is vibration. And the word for it is devere. And <laughs> vir itself means truth. Uh, or truly or true in Latin from veritas. And de Vere's name is de Vere. His, his, his very name is all about this. And so whether you believe he is the Shakespeare or not, I, I personally have a strong feeling that this is all part of that story. Very, very, very much so because I see his name over and over and over and over in the codes. Anyway, bottom line, you've got, wow. It's point the, the the codes are saying the truth of my identity is in the Holy of Holies, in the Devere. Wow. So I was told that I see that in the codes, but I know very well that the codes themselves, um, well, first of all, you have to know that there's a tremendous resistance within the Stratfordian community, the official orthodox story about Shakespeare, to any insinuation that he might not be the real writer, of course, and that's understandable because their whole existence for 400 years has been based around this is the guy. Right. Stratford itself is a, is a town that lives off Shakespeare. Every hotel and cafe and <laughs> every small business has some name associated with Shakespeare. People flock there in the millions and they buy the trinkets and the mugs and the T-shirts and they visit the church. With respect, I'm not making fun of that at all. I mean, I, I, I understand it, but I knew that I had to get to the church to tell them uh, that I had found this information that said there's something perhaps very, very important in your church. Right. It just kind of adds to the difficulty because there is so much money being made off of tourism. Even the church itself, people go there and they pay to get up there and get close to the grave of Shakespeare. Exactly. So we have this big story. You know, we told us about your personal history. There's resistance to upsetting the apple cart with this mystery, but you know it's pointing to the altar stone and you want to get in there. And that's the roadblock that I was referring to earlier because it's going to upset the apple cart. They're not going to really be very open to just, yeah, sure, let's just crack this thing open and <laughs> let's lose all our tourism money. Uh, they're not open to the risk there. And parts of your personal story helped to somewhat overcome that risk. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So the codes are saying it's in the altar. But that altar stone is A, a holy relic, uh, B, one of the most visited tourist churches in and, and attractions in all of England, second behind the Tower of London. It is protected by 24-hour CCTV cameras. Busloads of tourists are arriving continuously all the time. Every time I've been there, it's just 
busload after busload after busload coming in and flocking to stand there at the grave for a couple of minutes and then take a snap a few pics and come out. It's protected by a forensic system that sprays you with a chemical if you get too near to the altar when you're not supposed to be there, or even to the grave. The grave itself is fenced off with a, a brass rail, and you can't just go in and look at it. You can look at it from you know just the other side of that brass rail, but nevertheless, suffice to say, it's all highly protected. I'm not going to just walk in there and be able to... You know, I, okay, I know it's in the altar. There's something in the altar. Shakespeare left or something in the altar. I mean, you think it through. If I was to say to you now, uh, behind this wall here, in uh, somewhere in Italy, there's a, there's another Da Vinci, perhaps a new Mona Lisa. You know, should we go and have a look? Nah, let's not bother. <laughs> I mean, yeah, of course we go and have a look. If we went and said we found some basement where, you know what? Under this basement, there's Beethoven's Tenth. We didn't know he wrote a Tenth Symphony. <laughs> so there, should we have a look? Obviously, the world should beat a path to the door of the church and say, my God, if there's something in there that, sh I mean, Shakespeare left nothing. There's this big mystery. It could be all the missing manuscripts. Right? It could be, it could be the missing manuscripts of Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet and King Lear and Midsummer Night's Dream and Twelfth Night and, or it could be something new that we've never heard or it might, I mean, it could be anything. It could be a laundry list. Whatever it is, if it's a laundry list in his own hand, they could slap it up on a wall in a museum and charge whatever they wanted for people to see it for the rest of eternity because it would be the one thing we have of Shakespeare's. We have nothing. And yet, here's news saying he's left something for us and it's right there. In a very obvious place, the truth is inside the most sacred, holy altar stone called the Devere, called the truth. Wow. So it's there. And I know it's there, but I'm going to be strongly resisted. And so I had to go and try to. Now, it, it, on many levels, this is awkward because I am going there to try to find if I can convince them to let me have a close look or or, you know, for us all to have a close look. But I do know, I know absolutely it's going to be resisted because well, as what you said, it's a multi-billion dollar tourism industry. It's going to be resisted by the tourism aspect. It's going to be resisted on the academic aspect because for 200 years, let's say, academia has been teaching this story of the man from Stratford who is Shakespeare, but there's no life, so don't pay any attention. Don't worry about that. But we know nothing about him. We suppose a lot. We think he must have done this and did that because that's why there's a hundred thousand books on him. But don't you know? Don't pay any attention to that. We have the works. That's all that matters. Well, that would be a bit of a black eye if it turns out that that's all been a myth. And I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying that I understand the resistance. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you've got resistance on all, all kinds of levels. They're not, as you said, they're just not going to welcome me with open arms and say, oh, Alan, you found something? Yeah, cool, well, let's open it. It's not going to happen. And I can understand why. The same, by the same token, I feel an obligation that, boy, I know this is real. Because I've worked on this, for, at that time I had worked on it for six years. Six going on seven years. Now I've been at it for 14 years. And the whole picture changes yet again, but let's get to the point of the altar. But at that point, I knew oh, he, he's telling us. 
And if he's telling us, if he's gone to all this trouble to, to make this code to say, please look inside the altar, I've left something that will answer a lot of questions for you. Well, if we really love the man's work, don't you think we should do what he's asking us to do? We should. Yeah, he's asking us. And yet it's going to be resisted because of the various vested interests. So I go over there and I, I meet with the vicar and I, and I meet with uh, various people, uh, the head of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and on and on I'm, I'm meeting resistance, but I am breaking through in some way. I do know that there's, there's obviously you know they're, they're they're not corrupt people they're not they're not the illuminati they're not sitting there twisting their curved mustaches saying ah, well, let's keep this truth from the world they don't know they don't know they don't know that but nevertheless there's that uncomfortable mm, but what if we'd rather not know and so these two dynamics are at play i did a lot of things to get into their good graces i i, I created a I designed a calendar for them to sell in their gift shops that would help them raise money for the church celestial windows. And we talked about doing, yes, as you said, a Davy Jones concert to raise money for them. Um, and all of this was received very nicely. And of course, I, I was genuinely trying to help them uh, because I could see that, I, you know, you've got to be friends with people. You can't be combative. I couldn't go there saying, you're liars. This is not the truth because it's not, they're not lying. They just don't know. Right. Well, they just, so it's just interesting that they happen to be such fans of Davy and you happen to have an in there. So you could kind of like massage your way in that way. Again, yeah. The divine story that is being written is not apparently random. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all connected on various levels and use what you've got to him. It's just like, oh, I told him I, um, I've written a couple of Davy Jones books. Oh, wow, show us. And of course, I'd give them signed copies and talk about. We didn't do the Davy Jones concert because David passed, unfortunately, before that could be accomplished. But point was, they were getting to trust me and know me and, and, and we liked each other. I knew, though, that um, in asking personally the vicar and the other people involved if I could actually do what would be necessary, which would radar scan the altar. You know, just just radar scan it. You don't need to harm it. Just pass a ground-penetrating radar over it to look and see if there's anything that looks suspicious. You know, is there anything in there? And there was a desire at first to say, yeah, we really should. I, I feel... I feel uncomfortable not uh, uh, giving mass at that altar stone if it, if because the bottom line is if there's something in there that shouldn't be in there, it is by definition then desecrated, meaning it should only have the saint's relics in there. But the codes are telling me Shakespeare and John D, the real Shakespeare, whoever that was, and John D, must have put something in there because they. Say so. <laughs> Say I've put something in here to tell you about the story of why there's a mystery. Now that mystery might be just that the man from Stratford was a recusant Catholic and couldn't reveal his true Catholicism because we were now in Elizabeth's reign and Protestantism was in, and you know those were very troubled times. So it might be that 
It might just be that. But he, he had to hide his identity because of that. So it, it needn't hurt the church. But nevertheless, there's also the possibility that it's someone else and they don't want that possibility. And so I was in a very difficult position myself. Of I didn't want to deceive these people. And in fact, I, I told a couple of people that it was definitely my intention to get in there, to scan it. And I asked permission of the vicar and he said he couldn't give me permission, but that I should go and ask the bishop of the diocese. So I did, I had to make an executive decision knowing full well that if I went and asked the bishop of the diocese, that's the, that's the, that's the next possibility. If that bishop said, nah, can't do it, not interested, I'd be done. I would never gain access again because they'd be suspicious of me if I, you know, I kept on coming to the church and being close to the, I'd already filmed a couple of times there and taken photographs up close of every square inch of the altar. You know, they'd, they'd know then that mm, Alan wants to get in there, we'd better watch him carefully. I knew I would never have an opportunity to actually find the truth and it might just be cut off from me as a possibility and therefore cut off from the world. In other words, I really had this obligation to say, if I'm going to do this, I'm the only person that suspects it's there and that knows the, the codes, and I better, I, I've got to scan it. So I did go and scan it without permission because I knew I had to. And then I went to the bishop later and asked permission and was essentially denied, which I knew would happen. But at least I had the insurance of having already scanned it. And if he had then said, yes, yes, you can, then I would have just given him the scan. I, I went over in order to say, all right, well, I've actually saved you the trouble. I actually did it. So you probably want to know how I did it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, your listeners do. I know you know how I did it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So after uh, basically six visits to Stratford and and uh, working with them for about four years, I was in their good graces, and they they liked me, and they uh, and they knew that I'd written a musical about Shakespeare. So I asked permission to actually produce um, a show uh, at Shakespeare's grave, right there in the chancel on Shakespeare's birthday, the official birthday, April twenty third, when uh, there'd be a congregation and the whole town would be celebrating, and I would play and perform excerpts from my musical Bard. Now. I actually did two trips in order to accomplish this. And the first trip was basically a, a, a dummy run, a dress rehearsal of it, in which uh, there was an audience still. And we, we put up, I put up a, a banner in front of the altar advertising the music. So it was a big banner, about 12 foot by 9 feet, in front, hiding the altar, uh, saying Bard, the musical by Alan William Green. All right. And then there's the piano in front of it and we were filming and we had this whole thing going on. And for the last, the last number during this show, I said, let's now bear in mind, what about the forensic system that sprays you? Well, I'm doing a show there. So they had to turn that off. So that's turned off. We've succeeded in not having that. Uh, but of course, the 24 hour CCTV cameras are still happening and I had to disable them. So in a spy movie, one I would have gone up on a step ladder and sprayed black paint over the uh, CCTV cameras, wouldn't I? If this was uh, Ocean's 14, 15, 16, whatever. <laughs> but this wasn't a spy movie. This was happening in real life, and I couldn't just <laughs> spray over the cameras. 
So I figured out a way, and we planned it, and we rehearsed it, and we got this whole thing. And I said, all right, for the last number, I, I want uh, candles all around the piano. I'm going to be singing this song to the Shakespeare Monument, singing Sonnet 18, the famous sonnet, Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day? And let's turn all the, all the church lights off and do this by candlelight. So it's utter darkness, just the flicker of candlelight. So we defeated the CCTV cameras. And behind the scenes, behind the banner, whilst I'm singing, I had a team, somebody scanning with a radar and somebody else filming it in night vision so that we would have proof that we had done it. We didn't even, we didn't harm anything. We put a, a, a coating, a, a paper coating over the altar itself with lines on it to help the guy in this minimal, minimal, tiny flickering light of the, the candles to just show through where he could see the line so he knew he would scan straight. Scanned it. I'm singing for three minutes. All done. Finish. They disappear. Applause, applause, applause. Thank you. Good night. Hmm. And that was it. And we had the scan. And I took that scan to two of the leading radar labs in America independently so that they both did the uh, checking of it, the analysis of it, independent of each other. And all I told them was that uh, this was a scan of a piece of rock that we believe might have a hole in it, that somebody might have put something in. We didn't tell them where it was or what it was because they didn't need to know that. I just, you know, obviously just said, we've got some scan for you. Will you check it? And the analysis came back two weeks later. Both of the labs called me at separate times saying, uh, Mr. Green, it's, you, you said you're looking for a small hole that should show up as a little blue area where the, where the saint's cavity is, right? Where this little reliquary is. Uh, they said, we don't understand, though. It seems to be blue all over. The, 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 the altar seems to, not the altar, they didn't say, the stone seems to be well, basically hollow. Mm. And, of course, I went, yes! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a much bigger cavity than is supposed to be there. Much bigger. 250 times the size it's supposed to be. And not only that. And they both came up with the same result. And in that result, you can see, and you can see these a uh, little bit of this online. I haven't posted them all, but you can see that there are different gradations of density in, in the scan that show you that there's something in there. We can't say what, we don't know what, but it's, it's full of stuff. So yay, I was right. Hmm. And the scan is right. And the codes are right. And it's all there. And so then, once I had that, I went back to the church and I went to the went to the bishop and told him the whole story, but not the scanning. And I said, you know, I believe these codes say that it's there. Will you give me permission to scan? Or, or I'll, I, I, I even I said I'll pay for it. I'll, you know, and 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 it's yours. I mean, whatever's there is yours. If there is something there, as I say, put it in a museum and and put it on a world tour, King Tut's tomb tour. You know, I mean, it would be the biggest story in literature. Ever. Right. He'd make a fortune. But, uh, but I could see in his, you know, in his eyes the glint of, yeah, and I might also find out that it's not our guy. <laughs> and so he said to me, the bishop said, I'll have to take it to a higher authority. And I knew that was the kiss of death. That's why I had already scanned it. 
I mean, I didn't want to do. I I, I didn't want to have to do this, uh, this deceitful thing, but I had to. I mean, I it was a very awkward situation because honestly, they I, we would never know otherwise. It would never come to light because I would never have been allowed to do it had I asked. Right. The story is too important, and what it reveals is too important. So you really just kind of had to force your way in a little bit. But I, I guess had to, I, that... I had. To, I'm I'm the bad guy. If you want to blame me, it's fine. <laughs> the point is, I did it because for the world, the, pos- the for Shakespeare, he wanted us to know. And as far as the world's concerned, there are hundreds of millions of Shakespeare fans who will say, "Of course, I want to know what Shakespeare left for." Forums. So on the website, there's a, a voting mechanism where you go and just say, vote, you know, do you want it? Do it? Yes, I want to know what Shakespeare left for us. Or no, I'm not interested. Let's leave it another 400 years. Mm-hmm. Bit of a tongue in cheek uh, <laughs> question. Um, and we haven't really promoted it very much so far. But so far, we've got about 12,000 votes saying yes, and maybe 200 saying no, because that's about typical. You'd get a few people saying no, don't want to know. There's a couple of tricksters out there always, but that is really full circle, the big overarching story. And now it is just about trying to break through that resistance, generate interest and open that altar stone, hopefully in a public fashion. But that's basically where we are. That's where we are. And we have a plan and I can't go into it in great detail yet, but I can tell you that if you stay tuned, please go to, please go to the website and vote. And that is www to be or not to be dot org and and just go to click the button that says vote but look at the other videos that are there because you will see that this story goes even deeper and i think we've got about 15 minutes left so maybe i can tell you how how much deeper it goes but essentially that's the first goal is if we can open that altar stone well we've got to convince the, the church of of the necessity to open that altar stone. And there are various reasons why, in fact, once this story gets known, it will be inevitable. They have to open it because, well, on one level, there is a spiritual obligation to, because if there is something in there, and I've now proven it with the scan, that means that by definition, this consecrated altar stone, where they say mass, is actually in a state of desecration. If there's something else in it, church says, Catholic church says, if there's something else in there, it must be reconsecrated. It must be opened. The offending materials <laughs> must be removed and it must be reconsecrated. Otherwise, you, you, I mean, you've got people praying at an altar that is desecrated and that opens up an interesting spiritual conundrum. Are my prayers answered? What about my Aunt Agnes that I've been praying for? Is she still in purgatory? Hmm. I mean, really, I mean, seriously, I'm not a Catholic, but I'm not, and I'm not making fun of that. I'm just saying that that's their belief. And wow, I, I, I can't. In fact, the vicar said to me, he felt some discomfort about the idea of continuing to uh, give mass at that altar if there were something there. He didn't know that I'd scanned it and he didn't see it. But the point is, still, he had that understanding that, well, if that's the situation, I'd better be, um, but be aware that this makes me uncomfortable. I So they have a spiritual obligation to do it. Secondly, you know what? Catholic Church. This is not technically a Catholic Church anymore. It's what they call Catholic light because it's Church of England. But that doesn't mean the Catholic Church has no 
vested interest in the outcome of this because that is actually a Catholic altar stove mm-hmm. consecrated originally in 1208. Without going too much into the details, I think the Catholic Church could use a good story right now. <laughs> yeah, they've got some bad ones out there that they could definitely balance out, to say the least. So as we're starting to close this thing out, is there anything people can do besides just vote? Because I worry that, you know, a million people could vote and I don't know that they would care about some anonymous email addresses and a big list that was formed online. I just feel like they could dismiss that. But I don't know. I just feel people are probably pretty charged up about this. Is there any further help or energy we can put into it to try to push this thing through? Thank you. I very much appreciate that. And all I would say for right now is just do that 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 first step. Before that first step reaches much further, I will have an announcement coming in in, in the new year as to uh, a very, very, very exciting development in this. I can't say it right now because it involves strategy and it involves going to see the church first to discuss it with them. But I will tell you, it, it will we are go- we are going to find a way to open that altar. It is going to happen, and I I will be able to reveal that. Um, and I'm not being coy. I, honestly, it's just that it has to happen in a certain order. But things have been happening for me very 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 thick and fast recently over the past couple of months, where I have helpers coming to the fore at last. I've been working in on this in almost complete seclusion for nearly 15 years, and I've been content to do that because it's a great joy. It's a privilege to be doing it. It's a joyful thing, and I laugh myself silly almost every time I find something. And <laughs> you go, my God, this guy was so clever. Oh, my goodness. Beautiful, elegant, wonderful. Wait till the world finds out about this. But nevertheless, yes, it's not, it's lovely. I've always been thinking, oh, okay, so this is a perfect way to end it. Going back to that whole full circle to manifesting, you know. Mm-hmm. Once I had that experience in the desert driving back and I, I, I was given that, that grace of recognizing that it's okay, you know, just ask me, I'll give you, I'll give you the record deal. I'll give you whatever you ask for. Um, don't have to ask for a million because you just ask for what you need because then when I need the next, I can just ask for that next need. And it's always been fulfilled for me ever since then. I mean, no, seriously, honestly, I can only say driving back from that experience, I was pulling, I was coming into Los, into Los Angeles area and I was looking at things that I, uns, I was in such a changed consciousness. I honestly didn't understand. I looked at bank. I don't know which one, Wells Fargo, Chase, whatever. I saw a bank. I didn't understand what it meant. I thought, what bank? What is a bank? Why would you even need a bank? I've, I've got this bank in my heart. I can just ask for what I need and it's there. That's the, that's the state that I was given, which, as I say, faded. You know, it was, it was a, but it was just like, why would you? It's a, it's, there's another level of consciousness of that we all are so loved that we don't, we, we don't even know the, the first step of it, of how, how deeply that, what that means, that we are, we are, we are the I am that I am. We are, and, the, and the whole game is to uncover it. And so when I see this whole, oh, you know, the, this, this common thought is that there's the writer 
is hidden inside and there's a mask covering him. There's this Shakespeare mask. And but there's, there's somebody that's the real writer somewhere inside, hidden, that he's used this mask. That's the common thought when you look at the Marlowe story and the De Beer story and the Bacon story. Everybody assumes that this man from Stratford is just a cover and that he was somehow devious, that he stole the identity of the real Shakespeare. And I just believe it's not that at all. Whoever it was, he came to actually give us a metaphor. And that metaphor is the real truth, the veer, the devir of the word of the Holy of Holies altar stone. That's what's inside all of it. But at the same time, we are undoubtedly wandering around like idiots, right? We're all bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream wearing an ass's head, aren't we? We're, we're, we're in a state of delusion. We don't know who we are, mm-hmm. right? And that's what Midsummer Night's Dream is about, the donkey head, right? We're, we're, we're all asses. But he's telling us, no, I didn't get this. I, I, the, my identity was not stolen by this this uh, country bumpkin character, this bottom, this person who has no education and never traveled anywhere. We're the same being. It's all one. That truth, the devere, the veer is inside and you are it. You are the whole thing. We are that deluded character in Midsummer Night's Dream wandering around, but we are also the real divine writer inside. He, he hid his identity behind a mask in order to tell us a spiritual truth. That is, that is the human condition. We all are that. Right. And that's what's so comforting to me is, wow, this is a great being, a great soul who comes to earth to actually live out, play out, enact something that will tell us a truth. And he actually hides his own identity as part of that, in order to convey it once we find it. And we go, oh, my goodness. So that is, yeah, that makes sense to me. The spiritual story of, well, you know, does Christ say, we know ye not that ye are gods? And these things that I do, ye shall do? Greater things? We're all God. You are a God. Mm-hmm. It's inside you, but you have forgotten, because you're part of the play. And the whole journey, the puzzle is to, Refind it. And that's what he's done with these codes and the hiding of the identity. It's just the same thing as creation. And when you realize it goes back to it, because otherwise, how else can you make sense of things like, what? There are beings who knew that made these symbols for Saturn and Jupiter that knew the volumes of those planets or that the original name for the Holy of Holies is the Devere. That's 2,000, 3,000 years old. Why does someone incarnate now with the name De Vere mm-hmm. <laughs> and hide the Vere, the truth, inside the altar, which is the De Vere? It's also interwrapped. It's an enigma within an enigma within an enigma. <laughs> but it's a puzzle, the same puzzle that we all face in trying to find out who we are. That's the Shakespeare story and that's why it's such a great fun thing so it's a great privilege to have been to be involved in it and i honestly think 
we are we are going to find out more and more and more. So you you asked, I guess the ultimate question I'm trying to answer is you said, so what can you do? Bring it to other people's attention, please, whatever way you can, and just have them do the vote because I can promise you within two or three or four months at the most, we're going to renounce something public that is going to be very, very big. Mm. And it's going to be an alliance where we are going to get the church to open it and they will feel comfortable opening it because they will be treated properly as well. It, it, it's not, we're not out to get them, we're out to just bring the, bring the truth to the world. And it will, it is a beautiful truth. It's not something where somebody stole some identity. It's just, it's a beautiful, it's a metaphor <laughs> wrapped up in a wonderful story, as you would expect from Shakespeare. I mean, it's just all the world's a stage. It's just a drama. Mm. Well, cheers to all that, Alan. Your work is clearly amazing. I can't believe you've been able to decode all this stuff. And I'm just itching to get that damn altar stone open now. I really appreciate you being here. Keep it up and we will await the announcement and vote in the meantime. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate it very much, the opportunity to share it with your with your listeners and uh, yeah i promise you and i will let you know and we'll have another show on it where we can reveal it to everybody thank you i look forward to it until then take care you too man sweet red dead redemption week people boom goes the dynamite alan green and the shakespeare mystery mm. a very unique kind of show involving some of those shadowy reoccurring characters we seem to run into quite often and this whole story really does point to a real, actionable step towards uncovering a mystery. That's kind of been my theme lately. I'm a little over these stories that don't lead us anywhere. And I want to spend time on stories that might speak to something verifiable. Whether it's scans in Helsinki, or scans in an altar stone of the Church of the Holy Trinity in Stratford, England. I think this mystery is fascinating. It really is like a real-life national treasure adventure, and I love the boldness of doing that scan under the radar. Very cunning to enact such a magic trick, such a Kansas City shuffle, by hosting that live performance that has everyone's attention. Truly a Danny Ocean move. It's very much like something out of a movie, and I am just in awe of Alan's ability to pull that off and just the whole decoding in general. Honestly, we would be lucky to uncover something half as compelling in our lifetimes. If you watch his videos about the whole saga and the sonnet structure and just all the decoding, it really is something he should be proud of. I've got a lot of respect for the work. Also, as an episode of THC, this show clocks in closer to two hours and 20 minutes overall. And it really didn't fit that well into our traditional framework here. But the beauty of this structure is that it does have a lot of flexibility. And yes, plus people pay for an extra hour, an exclusive hour. And as plus members, I do hope most are just happy with getting a good show that's over two hours. And I hope that's more important than how much of it other people didn't get to hear. But I couldn't just cut it off at the 60-minute mark this time, or people just wouldn't have gotten to the heart of this story. We would have only been halfway through Alan's musical career, and that would be a terrible place to leave free listeners hanging. And I do care about that. I always try to make sure that the show is cut in a way that still feels complete on the free side of things. Because I'm not 
looking to scam anyone or trick them or overly tease them. I don't want you to end the free show frustrated. I've listened to shows like that. This is just a model that provides consistency and autonomy for me and keeps us away from advertisers. I always want to be fair, and I remember the days when I was just lucky to have a couple thousand people's attention. And I still feel that way. I don't want to waste your time, and I don't want to disrespect you by giving you half a story. So the free show is a little extended, for sure. And while it isn't the main attraction in this story, I do appreciate some of the insights we got from a walkthrough of Alan's career. And it ties into several interesting points and provides a nice template for manifestation and the power of thinking you can, how synchronicities work. I just thought we would cover that aspect in about 15 minutes rather than 45 minutes. And you probably heard me try to hurry it along at times, but the reality is if a story is only half told, you kind of just need to go with the flow and let it be told. But again, how interesting that his producer at one point only wanted to invest in the release of a song about an underage girl. I thought that was worth filing away in the context of some of the other shows we've done about the music industry. And he didn't throw this in today, but in other tellings of the story, I've heard Alan mention that they wanted him to work under the persona Mad Jack, which obviously phonetically magic. And that's also kind of interesting. Maybe it's just wordplay. You know how marketers can be. But of all the words to invoke, it's that one. Fun little synchro mystic connection with Chris Knowles' work as well. I didn't plan on bringing that up in the interview, but Alan broached it, and so I tried to just run through it real quick. But it is funny how it hits the Liz Frazier stuff from two sides, the Monkey's TV show and this mortal coil being a Shakespeare quote. I definitely plan to talk to you about that here in the wrap-up, of course. And I do like Alan's life story because it's so true that had he not developed himself as a musical artist and formed such a strong and statistically improbable bond with Davy Jones, he would not have been able to get that scan of the altar. And that's really the point of going into his personal career history. Picking up on these things that later become insane synchronicities and yeah, the pacing might have been a bit off today, but as I said, we started trying to get this interview done over a year ago, and then those wildfires hit California. So maybe the details of the THC show structure were not fresh in Alan's mind. Why should they be? That's my concern. But I think if you're with me at this point, and you got to the part where it all comes full circle around this altar stone, then I think you've been introduced to something pretty provocative. And I do urge everyone to just go to YouTube and watch The Stratford Heist. It's really great to see the visuals of the scan and how the concert and banner were set up. It's 13 minutes and it is a great follow-up if you were intrigued by this Shakespearean saga. Also vote on the website. Link will be in the show notes because it's important to Alan. I'm not as convinced of the value of the voting as Alan is, but it is not my story, and this is what he is asking of us, and I hope we can give him that, since he gave us such a compelling story, and just as a token of respect for his dedication, and I hope it does become an important aspect of getting to this next step. I also really look forward to hearing this announcement as well. That's great that we have something to look forward to. 
But though our free plus split was thus a bit askew, plus people did get to hear some interesting added elements like how the mathematical code relates to the Great Pyramid and its overall historical importance. We also talked about the alchemical connection, the underlying value of knowing reality's blueprints, why Alan doesn't see Sir Francis Bacon as the true identity of Shakespeare, and also the Saturn-Jupiter connection. That is a wild one. So there are still a lot of compelling added elements in the Plus Show. Plenty of reasons to sign up, thehiresidechatsplus.com. Don't forget, we also knocked out one hell of a THC joint session last week. I got quite tipsy by the end of that. Don't know how important or necessary that was, but it did happen. I walked out to have dinner with my wife and she was not expecting what she got, but that's what happens when I'm having a good time shooting the breeze with you guys. And man, we really did have some high quality calls. I'm really humbled to just see how knowledgeable some of the listeners are, how awesome their life experiences have been. It really was a great time. I have had some plus people express frustration or confusion over not finding the information about it. I have seen your comments, and that's got to be my bad. Of course, I mentioned it on every show this month, October 25th at 7 p.m., but that doesn't tell you how to find it or how to call in. And I did post the information on Facebook and Twitter hours before. I know, not a platform that I like, but this is kind of the only big way to communicate with an audience outside of the actual show. So please, you know, a few hours before the joint sessions, just look at my Facebook or Twitter, hold your nose and dive into these social media dystopian platforms just to get that information. And I'm sure it will be the top post there. You won't have to be there for long. I will also post the details on the Plus site like a regular post, and then I'll just change that post to the actual joint session when it's ready to go up. All I really do is try to cut down on that downtime at the beginning. You don't need seven minutes of me trying to get the damn thing to go live on YouTube. And the joint sessions as a live, unprepared for thing are a bit slow and casual, but as an extra and as a way to spend time with the audience in a productive and positive way, I think it is a lot of fun. I've also put a reminder in the monthly Higher Side Herald. You can sign up for that at thehiresidechats.com. One monthly newsletter should be the first week of the month, and that will have joint session info, a future guest disclosure, probably a critic of the month just for fun, and some of my ramblings about the month's offerings and probably some deals in there too maybe for plus but definitely probably stuff for the merch store i did get a new shipment of grinders they were sold out for a few weeks but i have more now who couldn't use a fresh high quality four chamber metal grinder with a keef scoop at the bottom for good measure i don't know anyone (laughs) but that is our show a very unique saga happy to have alan here to tell it i hope we all had a good time And I will see you tomorrow, October 31st, with another show. So as Scar would say, be prepared, and I'll see you then. Your move, Shakespearean secret keepers, mainstream story sustainers, and religious authorities standing in the way of the big reveal. Your fucking move. This is important, hear what I say. I'm trying to tell you. It's not paranoia, not in my head. It's just the hard truth Knocked on your door while I still can 